Welcome to episode 297 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Ash Baker. Nathan Smith. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will continue our filmmaking element series with 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula, focusing on the visual effects and production design. Uh, real quickly before we jump in, be sure to head over to Cinematary.com. We have some new reviews up on The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, the 2019 feature. We have one on Tiger Tail, the new Netflix movie, as well as a review from Ash on Pink Flamingos by John Waters. So it's good uh, quality writing on the website right now. So uh, be looking for that. Um, but Andrew, I'm going to lead it off with you. You had a new release you wanted to talk about. I have two new releases I want to talk about, um, both available on VOD, of course, both kind of similar movies in various ways. Uh, the first one is called 37 Seconds. Um, it is by a woman named Takari. Uh, this is her debut feature. And this movie I just recently found when I was doing research for the episode. This played at TIFF last year, but I don't think it came across any of our radars. Um, it went to Netflix at the end of last January. That's been the first like North American release, so we can call it a 2020 movie. Um, it is a Japanese film about a girl with cerebral palsy. Um, her mobility is limited. She uses a wheelchair, uh, but she is an amazing uh, manga artist. Uh, and she works as an assistant illustrator for this really, really successful celebrity author in the world of manga who publicly denies uh, the protagonist exists. Whenever she does uh, PR appearances, she pretends she creates everything single-handedly. I guess she kind of considers her assistant cerebral palsy to be bad optics. Um, and... This is a bit of a shaggy dog story where the central conflict changes every 20 minutes or so, um, but every new direction it ends up going in uh, gets it something more and more fundamental about uh, all the challenges that the protagonist faces as a woman living with a disability. Um, so I'll, I'll run down a couple of the early ones. Um, so conflict one is that she wants to be taken more seriously as a manga artist, but her bosses refuse to credit her. Uh, conflict two is she wants to publish her own manga, but her work is considered too derivative of the manga that she helped make. Um, conflict three is that she decides to try her hand at hentai, uh, where standards are a little bit lower. Um, but then she's turned demon away. Lover. Yeah. I got a little bit of demon lover vibes. Um, she's turned away, um, by those companies because it is obvious from the sample she gives that she doesn't really have any firsthand sexual experience. So then conflict four, she needs sexual experience. Um, but guys on dating, dating apps are really judgy and, uh, she, she tries to get a male prostitute, but they aren't very accommodating for her. Um, and, and it kind of like goes from there, like circling in these ever wider, um, conflicts. Um, and, and all of these different conflicts that the movie spins out into illustrate in different ways how someone may have different, like many different problems in their lives, but they are often all connected in one way uh, or another. I, I didn't end up loving where this thing ultimately goes. Um, she ends up in Thailand in the last act of the movie, and uh, the, the film feels very different once we get to that part. But... 
uh, it definitely has the strength of its convictions in ter- in terms of like committing to to not committing to one particular problem, but kind of like seeking these larger and larger problems. Um, not particularly groundbreaking cinematically, uh, but it is nice to look at. It it has this kind of sleek, glossy feel uh, that is a bit elevated from your standard Netflix fare. But uh, I do think it's a bit derivative of the standard style that I see a lot from like a temporary Japanese live action dramas. Um, There are a couple of moments that kind of stuck out to me Um, in the sequence where she's trying to break into the world of hentai. There's this cool Scott Pilgrim-esque stuff going on where she's kind of seeing uh, animated comics in the world around her uh, and you're you're seeing a, a combination of animation and live action in, in this really um, kind of colorful and, and explosive uh, visual style but it doesn't last uh, super long there's also a, a really nice looking scene that, that's kind of reminiscent of vertigo uh, where we have two characters in a hotel room that has a neon sign outside of it and it's silhouetting their bodies that that's a very visually nice scene um a lot of that stuff is is few and far between, but overall, it is a pretty sweet, uh, pretty touching movie um, that you know also happens to be about experiences you don't see represented on screen every day. Um, so, um, good movie. I recommend this one. Um, other movie is um, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which has gotten a bit more buzz. Um, this movie is by Eliza Hitman. Uh, she directed Beach Rats, which I know Ash you watched this last week. Any any like really quick thoughts about beach rats um yeah actually beach rats um it was good i don't think it was like great but it was good i Mm -hmm. enjoyed watching it Mm -hmm. so i think that was a sundance movie and this is also a sundance movie um it also had a really brief theatrical run uh before the pandemic hit and theater shut down now now it i know (sighs) god it's killing me thinking about when I can go to the theater again. Um, theaters. But this movie is on Amazon VOD. Uh, when it first got put on there, they were trying to do the the $20 uh, like theatrical sneak preview thing. Um, and they've since dropped the price. It's now $10. Um, so if you want to watch it, now would be a good time. Um, this is also an indie drama. It is a bit more of an issues movie. Uh, than 37 seconds is you know that movie has to do with disability but it's not really um, like just about disability in kind of an abstract theoretical way it's also very personal this movie is a bit more abstract and theoretical it's about abortion Um, it follows this young girl in a very low income and vaguely abusive family Uh, she's living in Philadelphia I think Um, she thinks she might be pregnant she goes to a local women's health clinic um, to get that confirmed and then finds that it's not really a women's health clinic at all. It's one of those uh, evangelical organizations that tries to convince you not to have an abortion by showing you scary videos and talking about how much of a magical blessing every unborn child is and stuff like that. So um, this movie ends up having a really tight focus, unlike the other film, uh, where it is really focused on the central problem of, of this woman is not ready to be a mom, uh, both like maturity-wise and financially. So she needs to get an abortion and she has to go to New York to do that because her state is one of those states that have really restrictive laws about reproductive health. So bulk of the movie 
is this this foot on the ground, um, you know, gritty drama where we're we're following, we're kind of looking over her shoulder and following her as she makes this trek to New York um, and tries to seek um, uh, medical attention. Uh, she ends up getting there like a little bit too late one day and has to like spend the night on the streets of New York uh, to go uh, to another clinic the next morning. It ends up turning into a third day as well for various reasons. And this is a girl who doesn't have uh, very much money or, or of course, anywhere to stay. So it it's kind of a, a survival story of like her trying to, to stick it out in this like very un, un, uncaring city. Um, and this one has a much more pronounced aesthetic uh, than 37 Seconds does. It, it has this tough neorealist thing going on where the camera is staying very close to the actors and there's nothing particularly showy going on, but, but the, the lack of showiness is, a, is the choice that's being made. Um, the closest reference points for this one are um, Wendy and Lucy, which we've talked about on the podcast before, and uh, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, which I have talked about on the podcast before. And both those movies share various plot similarities with this one as well. Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days is uh, about and try, somebody trying to get an illicit abortion, and Wendy and Lucy is about somebody kind of stranded in a town they're, they're not from and, and kind of running out of money. Um, this one doesn't have... I would say it doesn't have the same impact as either of those films. It doesn't have the the kind of sustained tension that they have either. Um, sometimes it, it commits to the mundanity of this girl's experience a little too hard. And, and the individual scenes, I think, end up feeling a little bit slight. Uh, but it does have one amazing scene um, a little bit over halfway through the film. It's the scene that the title of the movie comes from where she's in a Planned Parenthood clinic and she's being asked a series of questions about her um, medical background, her relationship background um, and she's asked to respond to all the questions with either never, rarely, sometimes, or always and the camera, it's a a single take, the camera just uh, stays very close on the protagonist in his face as she answers these questions and, and in some cases doesn't answer these questions but still uh, kind of emotes and you that there's a lot that is not told to us about the protagonist's life that we are made to infer just based on these very small um, changes in her facial expression as she answers these questions. Um, uh, one example of this would be like, we never, we, we don't know like how she gets pregnant, right? Like we, we she doesn't necessarily have a boyfriend uh, that we see in the film. Um, her, her like experience with relationships and sexuality is like really uncertain, but some of the, the answers and non-answers to these questions and just like the sheer amount of acting talent on display in this one scene um, is really incredible and definitely had me tearing up. Um, I think that this this movie wasn't quite as impactful as I wanted it to be, like, like I said, but um, I think overall um, it is very good at, at doing what it what it um, sets out to do. Um, Though I think that, you know, if you want like a really intense abortion drama, I think that four months, three weeks and two days is, is probably the better film and definitely a, a a touchstone for this one. I I could definitely see the director like being inspired directly uh, by that movie. Um, 
but yeah, it's good. I imagine it will get a lot of talk around um, end of the year awards time, even though we're going to have a very weird end of the year awards time this year. Um, this is one of the few like big art house movies that I've heard a lot of people talking about already. So definitely check it out. Um, never, rarely, sometimes, always. Yep. Nathan, I'm going to toss it over to you. Sounds good. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about tonight is uh, a movie that I've been meaning to see for a really, really long time. Oh, because it's one of those little, I guess, the word or phrase is film maudit, a sort of cursed film, basically. Um <laughs> You know, uh, it's a it's a the kind of movie that has a sort of tumultuous release and maybe doesn't get a great reception, isn't really under understood, and then um, has its loyal defenders and eventually someday is properly received as the masterpiece it is. And that movie is Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. Um, Kenneth Lonergan, of course, the director of Manchester by the Sea, also. Uh, He's worked a lot as a playwright and worked as a playwright a long time before he was a filmmaker. Um, before making Margaret, he had done one movie. And Margaret was actually originally filmed in 2005, and it was going to be released in 2005 by Fox Searchlight. But his envisioned cut of the movie was like 186 minutes long, and they demanded that it could not exceed 150 minutes um, so he sort of struggled for a long time to produce a cut of the movie that he was happy with. He actually had Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker help him edit a 165 minute version. Um, but there were some budget issues and then this whole court litigation that lasted until like 2014 started over all of the disputes over the release of the movie. So eventually a just like 150 minute version came out in 2011 finally um, and it got positive reviews, but of course, like wasn't really widely seen. Um, and then a couple years later, a DVD of the full 186-minute director's cut came out. So the version that I watched is the 150-minute cut, which is the only cut that's on Blu-ray. The version that is 186 minutes is just DVD, standard definition, like oh. kind of grainy, apparently. Um, Are you going to watch the 180? I think I will eventually, you know, because I will say the 150-minute version is still, like, very good um, and, and really yeah. amazing movie, I, honestly. Um, I was not really crazy about Manchester by the Sea. I felt like it was kind of, like, overwritten sometimes and overacted maybe, and the emotional beats could have maybe been a little bit more subtle. And this movie is, like, very dramatic, and there's a lot of, like, shouting matches, and it sort of references opera a lot and there are multiple scenes where characters go to the opera and they watch opera for an extended period of time so the movie is kind of pitched in a very operatic register but I felt like it, somehow in the, the scope of this movie that really worked it's a subject that doesn't seem like it should be a movie that's three hours long <laughs> um, it's basically about this teen girl played by Anna Paquin and her name is not Margaret. First thing we should get out of the way. Her name is Lisa. Margaret is like a person in a poem that her teacher reads in a scene in the movie. Anna Paquin is Lisa, and she's this like very sort of uh, argumentative, opinionative, 
bratty, spunky, Upper West Side girl. Um, she goes to a private school. Um, she's got some kind of conservative opinions. Her mother, who's played by J. Smith Cameron, who you might recognize um, as Jerry on Succession. Um, her mom is an actress on Broadway. And so she sort of has a kind of difficult relationship with her mom because her mom works nights and they're sort of in and out and, you know, ships passing in the night. And so she's become like very independent and very opinionated um, apart from her mom. Um, And so a lot of the movie is honestly a kind of like Gilmore Girls, like really intense arguments between uh, very defined and defiant mother and daughter. Um, And so one day Anna Paquin is like leaving school and she needs to go buy a cowboy hat for some party or something. And she's walking and she's about to get on the bus, but she misses it. But she sees that the bus driver who's played by Mark Ruffalo is wearing a cowboy hat. And she thinks that like the cowboy hat is like the perfect cowboy hat. So she starts trying to like wave him down and get his attention. Um, And he's like kind of seeing her waving at him and thinking like, Oh, she's trying to like flirt with me or something, you know, like she missed the bus, but now she's trying to like, play this game with me to try to get me to pull over. So he's kind of like waving and winking at her and stuff. And he runs a red light and a woman steps out into the street and he plows right through her. um, And there's this horrible accident and the woman ends up dying in Lisa's arms. And it's like a very, very like shocking, horrifying scene. You know, it's not like, you know, cut away. It's like you see it and you're there like watching the life kind of fade from this woman's eyes. So you're there kind of with Lisa as this whole like insanely traumatic thing is happening to her um, and unfolding. And from there, the movie is just like this kind of like all of these people around Lisa, you know, her mother, her friends, the boys she you know, dates and sleeps with and the bus driver and the family of the woman who dies and all of these people who kind of like collide into her. It's just all of these like unfolding relationships. And, you know, it's, you know, clear that she went through this horrible thing, but it just becomes this like specter in her life, you know, like this accident becomes a way for her to sort of avoid everything else in her life. And she just becomes obsessive about this accident. And so she, you know, feels this immense guilt, you know, she feels like she caused the accident because when of course she did, you know, she was like, distracting this bus driver, and he was playing along. And so they were both kind of complicit in this. But she feels this immense guilt and then completely turns it around and goes after the bus driver and tries to like get him fired. Um, uh, like and engages this like huge lawsuit, like roping in the woman's the woman who died's fr- family and friends and just like really vindictively going after this bus driver. And it just becomes this like insane and complicated, you know, operatic, like emotional tumultuous thing in her life. Um, and it's, I, it, it's honestly, it's like a very different movie, but Kenneth Lonergan is, was the co-writer of Gangs of New York. And this movie, like Gangs of New York, is a very New York movie, and it's a New York epic, of course, in a very different time and different place. You know, this is like the very intense sort of boiling point of post-9-11 New York, where there are a lot of intense political and racial and religious uh, fault lines sort of exploding in the city constantly. And um, and I would love, Andrew, for you to 
to for your perspective on this movie as a teacher because there's uh, a lot of like really like great classroom scenes I think like just really sort of vivid insane passionate debates between students and Matt Damon and Matthew Broderick also play her teachers in the movie it's you know it's got a like really rich I think supporting ensemble cast um, but it's just like I don't know somehow like Gangs of New York you know it, it doesn't have like the continuous violence of Gangs of New York you know it has this one sort of moment of stunning like horrible physical violence but the rest of the movie is very kind of emotionally violent and it's the same kind of epic of like a very transitional moment in New York all funneled through like this one girl and it's like a story that's even I don't know in a lot of ways is not even that far removed from like a teen TV drama like the OC or something like that like it's not a register too far away it's just like much more written and much more sort of thematically uh, thought out and like sort of written um, and I don't know it's just it's a movie kind of going in I knew that I was probably going to love and probably think was great just based on the people I know who think it's a great movie um, but I was just like really sort of blown away by just the like emotional complexity I guess you know that you have a movie that's very funny in a very sort of teen way you know the things that Lisa says are very shocking and insane and, and scandalous um, but it's also like uh, horrifying at times and like just you know rips your heart out and um, so yeah I, I, I definitely recommend people check out you know either the shorter version or the longer version I think you can't really go wrong either way it's a, it's a great movie um, well, if you want the teacher takes, uh, there was an episode sometime mid last year where both Michael and I talked about it. Um, oh yeah, yeah it's yeah, a really yeah. it's a really good high school movie, really good teenager movie. Um, and I would really love to hear what you have to say about the the longer version because what you said about it kind of having this unfolding quality and, and also just like characters having these constant collisions with each other I think it is even more pronounced yeah. in the 180 minute cut. I mean it's honestly it's like not that different from in a weird way from something like Southland Tales where it's just like the whole world is sort of exploding in some way and like all of these people are connected to each other and I don't know it's just it's a movie where you're just like you started and you're like how could this be three hours long and then it's over and you're like I understand completely why this is the length that it is I'd also like to point out that Kenneth Lonergan wrote the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. So, <laughs> story wow. career. Rich credits. Yeah. Um, you wanted to talk real quickly about some Johnny Toe movies? Yeah. Um, I've been, one of the things I've been doing this quarantine, you know, is like a, kind of going through a couple different directors' filmographies. Um, and one of those directors is the great Hong Kong filmmaker Johnny Toe. Um, if you don't know him, He's kind of like the, you know, a lot of people compare him to Howard Hawks, I think, as somebody who had a very, very endless filmography in a lot of different genres and was talented in a lot of different ways and, and could really tell a story in any kind of form. And Johnny Toe is sort of the Chinese equivalent, I think. Um, he's predominantly known in the U.S. for action movies because, of course, that's a lot of times what people think that East Asian cinema is in America. You know, that's like what gets distributed and what, you know, plays at festivals and midnight movies and stuff or, you know, just are sometimes martial arts movies or heroic bloodshed movies or things like that. So movies like Exiled, the election films, the mission, um, 
But the big hits of his back home in Hong Kong and in China are actually like romantic comedies and melodramas like the Don't Go Breaking My Heart movies, um, Romancing in Thin Air, uh, you know, these just like really uh, beautiful, like emotionally complicated melodramas that are also really funny, um, that are also really visually stunning. So just like to really quickly go through like some of the, the real highlights lately, cause I've watched like nine of them, I think nine of his movies, uh, over the past couple of weeks. Um, I think just to give you a sampling of the vibes, um, my favorite that I've watched recently was t- turn left, turn right from 2003, which is this, Romance about a violinist and a translator who are neighbors, but they don't know that they live next to each other. You know, they've never met in their building and they coincidentally meet in the park one day, get to talking and they find out that they actually met like a decade before when they were both teenagers at a summer camp and they both fell in love with each other at the summer camp as teens, but they could never tell each other, you know, they were too shy, too scared. So they were just like, whoa, this is insane. You know, we're meeting 10 years later. So they exchange phone numbers, but the phone numbers on these like scraps of paper, like wash away in the rain. So they don't know how to get in touch with each other. And, you know, they literally live like right next door to one another and they don't know. And this just like, you know, the movie is all sort of about fate and fate goes to these like extreme, absurd physical lengths to keep them apart, even though they are so close together. Um, And so the movie is just like, you know, you're watching and you're just like, how can this sort of like. You know, it's it's like almost like a narrative challenge, you know, like to what lengths, you know, does he have to go to keep these people apart, even though they're so close together? And you're just like, how can he do it? You know, like it's like, how is it possible that these people aren't going to find that they live next door to each other? Um, But somehow, like, I don't know, it's just like Johnny Toe's like storytelling, both in the writing level and just on the sort of level of like where he puts the camera and everything like that is just, uh, he's just like insanely inventive and just has this creative, restless, creative energy. Um, and I think on a, on the sort of more action vibe, um, the best that I've seen recently is a hero never dies from 1998, which is a very sort of expressive, colorful, bold, triad gangster movies, you know, in this style of John Woo or Wong Kar Wai, you know, it's like very visually expressive, a lot of canto pop ballads and like jazz. And it's just, you know, the gangsters in it are just like very cool and wear sunglasses and cowboy hats. Um, and it's like super homoerotic and just like glances and gestures and all that good shit. Um, and it's just like fucking insane, you know, honestly, like, Honestly, you might body like John Woo and Wong Kar Wai both at their own shtick. Like, it's just like totally on that level. Like, I don't know what the fuck was going on a lot of the time, but it's just like a movie that's just pure vibe, pure emotion. Like, you see it. It's a fucking music video, you know. Um, The last one really quick is another like insanely premised movie running on karma from 2003 with Andy Lau, you know, many people might recognize one of the most famous Hong Kong stars. And this movie is about a former Shaolin monk who has become a bodybuilder and um, stripper. And he wears he has this like insane like prosthetic muscles. That's like really absurd. 
and he develops this like super heroic ability to like touch people and sort of see into their lives and see their histories. And so he becomes friends with this um, woman cop and like sees he touches her and he starts having these strange visions of like Japanese prisoner of war camps. Um, and he just kind of goes on with this woman on this strange like journey through like destiny and time and like through history. And it's another movie where I'm not exactly sure if I could fully kind of recount the plot to you beat by beat. But it's just like image after image sort of insane. Just like um, again, just like a very inventive, like restless movie where just moment to moment is just every image is stunning like every moment is very dramatic and the the you know it sounds like a joke it sounds like a comic premise you know this prosthetic muscle you know male stripper like bodybuilder former monk you know you think that like it's it's a gag you know a Stephen Chow movie and the animation does look a little bit like the Stephen Chow um like the absurd gags in Kung Fu Hustle or Shaolin Soccer but it's like very dramatic and it kind of uh hits you in your feelings a little bit you know you you wouldn't expect to be crying at a movie about a guy who's wearing plastic muscles but uh here you are i don't know so johnny toe there's something for everybody truly in his filmography all kinds of movies all kinds of vibes you know you got 70 minute movies you got 130 minute movies it's all there like 65 feature films just goes forever you never run out they're all amazing um there's a bunch on netflix amazon all those places just binge away i think johnny toe one of the light one of the greats nice um ash take us home with the uh with the couple for a couple of skate movies uh well the, that's yeah. the trick is you never really escape the real prison is uh, your mind <laughs> do you do you ever really yeah um, um, so I, I recently watched um, John Carpenter's Escape from New York and subsequently the sequel Escape from LA um, two wonderful movies very similar yet very different um, Escape from New York, a classic, 1981, um, from the man who brought us many wonders, such as The Thing, among others. Um, uh, it stars Kurt Russell, who, um, wears an eye patch and some really tight, um, pants and, uh, um, a leather jacket sometimes and you know he looks great throughout um, which I think is a great um, thing about this movie but more than that is the premise which is that um, some lefty comrades hijack Air Force One and fly it dropping the president of the United States into New York City, which is, in the future, a prison state, nation state. <laughs> they also drop him in a little egg yeah, pod, it, which I egg think pod is, is really great. amusing. I actually kind of want one, <laughs> um, just to, like, sit in sometimes. 
Um, but yeah, they drop him in a little egg pod into the prison nation state Hell of yeah. New York. Quarantine. Um, which, you know, at first you think, yeah, it's quarantine. It's also like, okay, this is kind of like a prison state. Everyone has guns. Everybody's just kind of hanging out. It might be fun. But you walk around and you find out this place is actually not very fun um, because there are these rat people who come <laughs> out of the sewers. Everyone is wearing, I think, the most <laughs> unrealistic part of this movie. But also one of the things that makes it so great is that everyone um, in the uh prison nation state is wearing animal skin yes yes isn't um isaac hayes in this movie wearing a great animal yes yes isaac hayes is in this movie wonderful but i'm like where did you kill the animals this is new york city (laughs) the animals are returning you could say like okay maybe they looted like the the fashion stores but they wouldn't have enough animal skin for everyone but anyway, um, basically, uh, the thing that fascinated me the most about these two movies were the politics of them and trying to figure out exactly what those are. Um, because at first you think like, oh, yeah, Lefty Conrad, a anti-imperialist hero lady driving this plane into, you know, oblivion, like fuck your president, like, whatever. And then they send in Kurt Russell. His name, by the way, is Snake Plissken, which is dope as hell. Um, and he's, like, Gear a Solid, former maybe. Marine. And Metal everybody Gear knows Love. this guy. Yeah. And, uh, and everybody knows this guy. American hero turned... Um, criminal and um, you think you know he they're like the prison people the cops are like you need to go save the president and he's like I don't give a shit about your president and you're like yeah man and then so basically they entice him through one way or the other to um, go save the president and um, also, a great thing about this movie is that he's on a time restraint, and it's very intense. He's on a time restraint. Um, but anyway, spoiler, he saves the president. And at the end of the movie, you think that it's going to be like... Um, he He's going to like uh, like fight the power or something. But he actually, I mean, he does in a way, but it actually turns out like he destroys a thing that is actually good. And you're like, okay, so this guy's just a nihilist. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember him being a sort of man with no name, true neutral character who he's kind of on this side and he's kind of on the other side, but really he's just on his own side and he doesn't have a a guiding ideology. Yeah, he's like, at first you're like, yeah, he's like against the cops and he's just like, 
he's just like saving the president to save his own skin and then like he saves the president but then he actually like he's kind of like not good either and so you're like oh you're just like a hard ass that's cool um and that's basically the politics of this movie is like are you a hard ass yeah (laughs) are you a bad enough dude to rescue the president yeah and then and then follow up with escape from la which honestly has a great premise even better than the already amazing premise of escape from new york which is that there is a um extremist conservative christian president who has taken over the united states and basically declared martial law and if you are not moral enough you get sent to the um to the nation state of la which is just for undesirables and immoral people people that the government slash christian state have deemed immoral which is a wild premise (laughs) um and so i i think like snake in this movie like robs a bank or something i don't know the same shit that he did last time and he gets himself sent to the uh, undesirable camp and um so anyway it's like a bunch of atheists and prostitutes and um it's pretty unimaginative actually in the way that uh it displays the undesirables i was a little disappointed in that i wanted a little more uh i don't know i wanted it to be more liberal i guess it does have a pretty crazy supporting cast though oh the supporting cast uh, is great pam greer's in it yeah, um, Steve Buscemi, Peter Fonda. Yeah, um, the the supporting cast is wonderful. I think the the thing about um, Escape from L.A. is like after I watched Escape from New York, I was like, is there a video game of this movie? Because and this is crazy for me because I don't play video games. I I don't. And so I watched this movie, and the first thing was like. I, I would play a video game of this movie. And that's saying... Well, there's Metal Gear Solid, which uh, the main character is named like after Snape, Snake Plissken. Yeah. So, I mean, very different, but yeah. Yeah, I, it's just sort of saying something for me to ask that question. And then I feel like Escape from L.A. sort of takes those video game vibes to the next level. And it's like, um, you've got, you know, the level where Snake Plissken is like... Um, you know, uh, in the car with Steve Buscemi. And then you've got the level where Snake Plissken is surfing um, through, like, a... a, a um, it, he's surfing on a tsunami that is moving through the city of L.A., jumps off the surf... Like, ha- gun in hand, jumps off the surfboard... Um, onto Steve Buscemi's car um, that is driving, like, on a highway, elevated next to the tsunami, um, which is, like, an epic scene, you know? But also you're like, 
this is this is unbelievable and then you've got the 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 you know video game level where you're hand gliding with Pam Greer and Steve Buscemi like down into like some sports field or something the 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 level where you're playing basketball for your life it's great and i think that both Escape from New York and especially Escape from LA deserve, um, like, I and I hate this, but I, I think that they deserve a remake because I really want Escape from LA, where that scene where Kurt Russell is playing basketball for his life, I really wanted the like evil person up in the stadium to be RuPaul, and he's like. He's like commanding um, Kurt Russell to lip sync for his life, <laughs> literally. They've been talking about a, a sequel or remake or something for years. I, mean, I think Kurt Russell could still do it. Don't do a I, remake. I really do want a sequel. It to they're, they're they're allegedly they're allegedly making a remake of uh, New York with the director of um, Invisible Man. Oh, yeah, right, Lee Winnell. I I I think that the I but. Again, the I think the politics of Escape from L.A. just, like, are even more <laughs> just, like, blurry. It's, like, what is actually happening. Um, well, I think they're maybe designed for you to project whatever politics you want onto them. Like, I imagine a lot of the, the people who are doing the Liberate America Trumpy rallies right now probably think they're in some sort of escape from New York hellscape, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're probably right. But that's what I, I sort of dislike. Like, probably the only thing that I dislike about these movies is I wish that they sort of took a stance. Um, yeah, I, well, have you I seen uh, They Live? I have not. Ooh, wow! Yeah. You, then you got it. Also, a movie that people tend to project onto, but I think the the correct reading no, is it's there. It's pretty. It's pretty. I think left wing movie, maybe the most left wing movie Hollywood's ever produced. I don't know. John Carpenter's They Live. It's on the list. Very cool. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back talking about some horny vampires and Dracula <laughs> after this. <laughs> Cinematary listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Well, now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our film theory and chill series where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast, and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week. So please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you miss an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday, we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content, 
and the last two reviews that we've written at cinematary.com. It's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening and it makes sure that you don't miss a single Cinematary review. Finally, the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else you're using to listen to the show. This helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website, and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. We are back with part two of episode 297 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our filmmaking element series with 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola from a script by James V. Hart, the film stars Gary Oldman, Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, and Anthony Hopkins. Count Dracula, a 15th century prince, is condemned to live off the blood of the living for eternity. Young lawyer Jonathan Harker... I hate it is, when that happens. I know, it's, it's really inconvenient. <laughs> Young lawyer Jonathan Harker is sent to Dracula's castle to finalize a land deal, but when the Count sees a photo of Harker's fiancée, Mina, the spitting image of his dead wife, he, impri- he imprisons him and sets off for London to track her down. Winona Ryder initially brought the script to the attention of Coppola. The director had agreed to meet with her so the two could clear the air after her late withdrawal from the Godfather Part 3 caused production delays on that film and led her to believe Coppola disliked her. According to Ryder, quote, I never really thought he would read it. He was so consumed with Godfather 3. As I was leaving, I said, if you have a chance, read the script. He glanced down at it politely, but when he saw the word Dracula, his eyes lit up. It was one of his favorite stories from camp. Writer also explained that, quote, what attracted me to the script is the fact that it's a very emotional love story, which is not really what you think of when you think about Dracula. Mina, like many women in the late 1800s, has a lot of repressed sexuality. Everything about women in that era, the way that those corsets forced them to move was indicative of repression. To express passion was freakish. In the months leading up to its release, Hollywood insiders who had seen the movie felt Coppola's film was too odd, violent, and strange to succeed at the box office and dubbed it Bonfire of the Vampires after the the notorious 1990 box office bomb (laughs) of Bonfire of the Vanities. 
Coppola chose to invest a significant amount of the budget in costumes in order to showcase the actors, whom he considered the, quote, jewels of the feature. He had an artist storyboard the entire film in advance to carefully illustrate each planned shot, a process which created around a thousand images. He turned the drawings into a choppy animated film and added music, then spliced in scenes from the French version of Beauty and the Beast that Jean Cocteau uh, directed in 1946 along with paintings by Gustave Klimt and other uh, symbolist artists. He showed the animated film to his designers to give them an idea of the mood and theme he was aiming for. Coppola also asked the set costume designers to simply bring him designs which were weird. Weird being a code word for let's let's not do formula. He later recalled, quote, give me something that either comes from the research or that comes from your own nightmares. I gave them paintings and I gave them drawings and I talked to them about how I thought the imagery would work. Uh, Gary Oldman himself thinks that Dracula was never a bucketless role for him, for him in the first place. He said that about the main reason why his younger self said yes to the role, quote, it was an opportunity to work with Coppola, who I consider one of the great American directors. That was enough, really. It was my first first big American movie made on a big set with lots of costumes. For a young actor, that was a tremendous experience. Another reason why Oldman wanted to play Dracula was because he wanted to say, quote, I've crossed oceans of time to find you. And to him, it was worth playing the role just to say that line. <laughs> Coppola was insistent that he did not want to use any kind of contemporary special effect tex- techniques such as uh, CGI imagery when uh, making the movie, instead wishing to use antiquated effects techniques antiquated effects techniques from the early history of cinema which he felt would be more appropriate given that the film's period setting coincides with the origin of the film he initially hired a standard visual effects team but when they told him that the things he wanted to achieve were impossible without using modern digital technology coppola disagreed and fired them replacing them with his son roman As a result, all of the visual effects seen in the film were achieved without the use of optical or computer-generated effects, but were created using on-set and in-camera methods. For example, any sequences that would have typically required the use of compositing were instead achieved by either rear projection with actors placed in front of the screen with an image projected behind them, or through multiple exposure by shooting a background slate, then rewinding the film through the camera and shooting the foreground slate on the same piece of film, all the while using matting techniques to ensure that only the desired areas of film were exposed. Forced perspectives were too often employed to combine miniature effects or matte paintings with full-size elements or create distorted views of reality, such as holding the camera upside down or at odd angles to create the effects of objects defying the law of physics. In 1992, Variety said, Overall, this Dracula could have been less heavy and more deliciously evil than it is, but it does offer a sumptuous engorgement of the senses. Uh, The Chicago Reader said, A somewhat dispersed and overcrowded storyline that remains fascinating and often affecting thanks to all its visual and conceptual energy. And Ebert92 said, The movie is an exercise in feverish excess, and for that, if if for nothing else, I enjoyed it. On that note, let's jump into Dracula. Um, kind of like we started with last week, um, you know, we're looking at the visual effects and the production design for this. So I'm curious for for everybody here, um, you know, th- when you're kind of going in thinking about uh, effects or or the design, you know, the production design. I mean, what is that? What do those concepts mean to you um, when you're watching movies and, and when you're kind of thinking about the development of those in, in a in a film i think in a lot of cases it's 
to both of these things have to do with the way a movie feels like the the tactile sensations that are evoked by a movie um the the way in which the the set is designed is is obviously going to to convey that to you but i also think like the choices that are made um to like in terms of how to do an effect will often feel weighty or feel floaty um you know the the almost cliche internet discourse at this point about visual effects is like um the argument between the superiority of visual or uh, practical effects versus digital effects um and watching this i was thinking that it was a mixture of both but it's it's really fascinating to hear that he did everything practically uh, but i do think it's a very tactile and textural film um for in terms of how it handles both of those things. Like another example of like the production design. And, and I guess we, if we can uh, include costume design and, and part of production design is like that big suit uh, that Gary Oldman is wearing at the beginning of the movie, that like Knights Crusader outfit that just looks like fleshy, like sinews, like all over him, kind of in the shape of a, of a bat. Like, it's just such an evocative um, design, um, and it just it looks like you could reach out and touch it, and you know exactly what it would feel like just from from the the you know the way the light hits it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you put that this topic well, Andrew, when you said that it's you know the tactile stuff. You know, when I think about production design. I really think about, you know, the material kind of element of the film, you know. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. the sort of the set decoration and costuming and all of that stuff and and everything, you know, that is is like the background and texture that sort of makes the kind of world of the movie um which how how real is it yeah, in the mind yeah. of the viewer. Um and I think special effects is, you know, is something different from that but also very much related to that you know that both parts of uh, both of these parts of the filmmaking process are really important like you were just saying Andrew to like making us believe the sort of reality of the world you know if there's not enough stuff or enough of the right stuff in the image like it feels off or it feels wrong in some way Um, and it's the same thing with special effects where you know if whether it's creature design or makeup or some kind of I don't know some kind of in-camera visual effect or something kind of more abstract or whatever um, it's all about sort of making us believe the reality of the of the illusion or the fantasy basically um, which this movie in being like one of the most maybe bold imaginings of of the Dracula story um, is it's like it, that's the what the movie kind of lives or dies on, you know, like because when you have a classic story like this, I think it's really the sort of material stuff is how you distinguish uh, one telling from the other. You know, it's the sort of visual imagination that Coppola brings to it distinctly that makes this Dracula very unique. And you mentioned the word illusion, which I think is a really key term to hone in on. Um, this is something we'll end up talking about soon in our Film Theory and Chill Patreon podcast. But, you know, the in the very, very early days of film, um, shorts were often shown as part of, like, 
um, festivals or amusement parks and things like that. Uh, this and George Milius uh, was sort of like a, a sleight of hand visual magician in the way that he used visual effects and editing and things like that. And it's um, it's interesting that that Coppola is um, cribbing from that era of special effects um, creation, and he even puts an early is it is it cine, cinemagraph or cinematograph uh, they they call it um, the the place that that the characters go to to like see early cinema in this movie, um, which kind of reminded me of Hugo a little bit as well. Um, both both um, directors of a similar um, you know era hearkening back to the very 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 early days of of the art form um ash anything else from you about just production design and visual effects in general yeah um i mean i guess when i set out to watch this i was thinking like you know i knew i was supposed to watch it for visual effects and i was like okay um you know dracula whatever I guess I was just sort of, <laughs> I, I was just sort of underestimating the inventiveness that was going to go into um, this Dracula viewing experience. <laughs> um, I was just not expecting like all of the um, very interesting um, shadows and like, um like it's honestly spirits. overwhelming to, yeah. to try and like think back to all the individual visual yeah. effects yeah it's and like it, a, i mean it's like a fucking fever dream it is it? it is and even that first um scene where we see um like i, I want to say mina but like pre-mina um dracula's original og wife um jumps from yeah, Elizabetha um, jumps from the uh, window into the river. It's like that, um, like that uh, shot just like gives you or gave me like just this sense of vertigo. And like also at the same time, um, like that, I guess it's like seems like such a simple thing to that would have been able to be done in 1992 but yet it's like the same technology that like Hitchcock used in Vertigo but it like I don't know the way that it it just looks so good well it's crazy to me that the the studio or whoever it was told Coppola like we can't do the things you want to do with the technology you have available to us when Coppola's like I literally want to do what the first uh, the first <laughs> filmmakers were doing when they had no technology whatsoever. How is this this hard? Um, but I, I guess I guess the the translation is it'd be too expensive, right? Um, because to actually make um, all this stuff as opposed to just doing it in post would um, it's just a lot more manpower required. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like I feel yeah. like um, not to go too auteurist on it, but. Um, I love my boy Coppola, Daddy Coppola, uh, one of the greats, I think, you know, much more than just the Godfather. Um, and as a lot of people know, um, the making of Apocalypse Now was like this huge, crazy, arduous ordeal um, on set in the uh, Philippines. And I like after that, I think Coppola really pivoted to like the complete opposite of that, you know, like really like 
maximizing um, the kind of potential and opportunity of studio filmmaking and really pushing it to its furthest extreme. Um, and I think that this movie is just like a testament to sort of like the controlled environment of a film set or studio. Um, just like once you strip any kind of reality away and start from scratch and build up, you can just do so much. I don't know. There's just like so much inventiveness um, to the design of this movie. And it's really because it's like so embraces that fantasy and illusion. It doesn't even pretend to be like any kind of connected to uh, uh, any kind of verisimilitude or anything. You know, everything in it is like production design, essentially. Like, that's why I thought that's why I recommended this movie when we were kind of putting this series together, because it feels like everything in this movie is design. Nothing feels you accept that this movie, of course, like you, you feel it all, you believe it all, but you know, like as a you know, critical viewer that everything here is designed and everything's been placed there and everything was chosen to be there. Well, it's kind of a, a paradox, isn't it? Um, you, the more you, um, design something to, to be, to feel real and to sell the illusion, um, the more you kind of call attention to the fakeness and the artificiality of your movie. Um, and an interesting case here is like a lot of the, this, and I think you mentioned this in your intro, Zach, like a lot of the backgrounds are matte paintings, um, which reminds me of like old Powell and Pressburger movies, like the, the Himalayan cliffs of black Narcissus that are actually just people standing on paintings. And it's so, um, these images are so amazing to look at and they feel real. Um, but you're at the same time, they, the, one of the things that's amazing about them is that you can tell that they're handmade and they're not real. Um, and like the, some of the shots of like, London at night. Some of the establishing shots of this movie are just like these huge paintings with fog floating in front of them. And it's really amazing to think about um, how much craft went into like putting that together. But at the same time, it feels completely immersive and like this is the reality of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's the, it was funny because, you know, I, I'm pretty. You know, you're you're familiar with the story of Dracula to this point. Is you know, if, if you've seen like at least for me in terms of movies, I've seen um, Nosferatu and then Nosferatu the vampire, and um, this one. So you have the story beats of Dracula down in this, but at the same time. I got lost so many times, and what the hell was yeah. happening in this movie? But then <laughs> That's what you, I love about it. <laughs> I know, but then luckily you have the reference point, which is oh yeah, they're just horny, and then they just want to fuck it, forever. It becomes, <laughs> absolutely, and it's 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 very much like I don't think I've ever uh, watched a movie that is so in the it's all about the vibes than Bram Stoker's Dracula because it's just all about the vibes. It's all about everybody wants to fuck and here's two hours of it. Well, then, my dude, you got to see some Lake Coppola. You know, you need to jam with some Twixt or Youth Without Youth because that's that's the same kind of shit. It's just fucking baffling to me that this is like a Hollywood movie because it's so kind of abstract and feels like a guy Madden movie or something else, like something that I just sort of imagined. Um, 
It's it's crazy. It's really it's it's it takes it adds a kind of Cronenbergian dimension, I think, to the Dracula story because it has this just like disgusting body design where like you really get the, the, the this is just this pure like lustful love, you know, that's uniting these people where like they don't even care like how like disgusting the vampire body becomes like this love is like something beyond that and so the movie is both like really beautiful in the design but also just very disgusting and 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 grotesque it's like it's a there are so many different designs of the like when dracula goes beast mode um and and like sometimes he's he's withering away he's an old man with pale skin who kind of looks like emperor palpatine sometimes he looks like a half bat thing other times he looks like a a gorilla or a wolf man or something and um the way in which they're able to kind of with the costume design fluctuate between all those different modes is really incredible. Yeah, I think one of my favorite um moments in the uh beast mode mode was um whenever and also one of my favorite visual effects in the movie was when he's in the bedroom with Mina and he's in bat form. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and then about that. Yeah. and then he goes into the shadows and he turns into rats. Uh, he's just a big. Yeah. he's a big rat body. <laughs> he's a he's a big rat Batman, and it is terrifying. And like, also, how did they get the rats to be like that in real life? Like production design, some trained rats. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as production design. We're stretching it. <laughs> the animal handling. <laughs> That's there's our future episode in filmmaking elements is animal handling. Animal we'll handling. come back to this. Honestly, we should. That would be fascinating. <laughs> well, then we'll be stepping on Wendy Mays's territory, so we better. We'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have her back. We'll have her back. Um, we'll have her back. Yeah. We'll have some animals on the show. Yeah, we'll just have all the animals talk. <laughs> It'll probably be our most listened to episode. Um, I I also you know we're, we, we're mainly talking about the um, the production design in this, but I do want to mention like the various performances in this because there's there's a lot of very known faces you know outside of like Gary Oldman and Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. I mean you also have like Anthony Hopkins and Carrie Olways and Richard E. Grant, and it's like it seems like this entire right. movie kind of coupling Tom Waits in this movie. Yeah, it cu- kind of. Uh, you know, coupling with just the insane design around them, every one of these actors is like cranked up to like a hundred and fifty percent. I mean, there's mm-hmm. scenes where like Richard E. Grant is just like losing his damn mind for no apparent reason, <laughs> and, it's, and Anthony Hopkins is having just a hell of a time through this entire movie. Listen, <laughs> listen, there is nothing, there is nothing in this world. I would not do to get Anthony Hopkins from this movie to take care of me. <laughs> I love when uh, he's he's like hitching up the wagon to go track down Dracula and he just shouts, I starve, feed me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. I mean, I think Zach, it's... 
I think it's really, you know, good to bring up performance uh, into it because I think that this movie honestly, like, treats its performers like part of the the production design. Um, You know, it seems like a movie that's very visually indebted to, like, German expressionism, and I think you look at stuff like... Caligari or or whatever and you know the makeup is very dramatic the performances are very extreme and they become part of the extreme sort of environment and background of the movies and I think that this is kind of like doing the same thing in a lot of ways where like it doesn't really matter that Keanu Reeves gives this kind of weird stilted performance because because um, he met like a- that weird performance matches the energy of what his character is supposed to be like all yeah. these characters are sort of marionettes for or, or like exactly, uh, or f- for the the costumes they're wearing and the energy they're supposed to be carrying along with them i mean it's almost like um um Oh God, um, Alhazar Balthazar guy. I cited him in my video Brisson. essay. It's almost like Brisson's whole thing about um, actors as models, where yeah. you're draining emotion from them. But instead of um, actors uh, emoting nothing, it's like what they're emoting is the the vibe of the room and the vibe of the these insane costumes and and like big uh, makeup makeup jobs that they're they're carrying around with them (laughs) i um i like it's been a while since i've read the book um bram stoker's dracula but it actually like i think sort of i mean obviously it's a lot more horny i think than the book but i think that it actually is a great adaptation just because the book is just as like chaotic, I want to say, as the movie seems to be, um, just in that like, um, you know, from like the like point one, dude rolls up to a castle, and guys like basically like stay in your room. Are you going to get your fucking blood sucked? Because I am a vampire. (laughs) And, like, shit doesn't stop getting crazy from there. Is, like, basically how the book is also. And I just... The only thing that I really wanted was just... I wanted sort of like a... You know those cameras they put in, like, animal rescue centers where you can go online and live stream the animals. That's what I wanted with Keanu Reeves, like, whenever he showed up to the place. (laughs) Because, like, he's watching... Like a nanny cam? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I wanted a nanny cam on Keanu um, from the start. He's, like, watching this motherfucker in his red silk robe and his fucking hair. He's going on the side of the wall... (laughs) On the on the outside on the building, he's he's crawling around like yes. a fucking Palpatine Spider Man. <laughs> yes, and he's just sitting there like, huh? And I'm like, my dude. And then he leaves the room, and he's like, and he he hears a disembodied voice say, "Come sit with me on the bed," and he sits down on the motherfucking bed. I'm like. My guy, 
what are you doing? And then I love the visual effect of like, I guess it's Monica Bellucci kind of like rising through the mattress and the sheets. In between uh, his legs. Yeah. It's like she was inside of it and just like kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God. Shape. He's probably here. Yeah. Uh, but to go back to the novel, I haven't read the novel, but the one thing I know about it is that it's uh, epistolary and there's so much narrating of letters in this movie and um the letters always get visualized for us in interesting ways where he's um overlaying multiple images of like maybe the face of the person writing the letter and the text of the letter and then i mean there's that amazing shot of the train keanu is on going across the horizon with like the giant journal that he's writing it in laid out in front of us um and there's also the eyes uh, yeah the eyes there's another letter and i'm having a hard time remembering um who wrote it but there's there's a moment where somebody is reading a letter and we start to hear their voice and like the paper that they're holding starts to it's almost like there are beams of light that are starting to tear through it like we're starting to see a little bit of their world through the parchment it's like this vivid pink purple color um it's really interesting that i mean how i mean the the visualization of somebody writing a letter to somebody else in a movie is such a such a rote um thing that we're we're so used to seeing but coppola finds ways to make it heightened and exaggerated and crazy it also it also reminded me of um it's it's very very early in the film when they're when they have like the um the battle sequences between dracula and the and the ottomans when it has like that kind of silhouette uh almost prince Ahmed. oh yeah, yeah. it's like a the lottie reiniger uh, style you know, just, yeah yeah and there's you see that again um the kind of shadow puppetry that a lot of early cinema played around with when they go to that cinematheque um, and you, you see people actually doing puppetry in front of like a, a projector. Um, so he's, he's kind of like making all those connections in the film without actually coming out and saying them. Yeah, it, it, it was just um, especially just kind of, you know, thinking back at, at, at the various dracula movie adaptations um nosferatu kind of comes very late in the german expressionist game and is kind of a little bit late expressionism in terms of like where the height of the movement of the film there was and so it's kind of interesting that this feels almost like more you know to nathan's point much more in tune with you know really the height of the of the expressionist movement in germany and like what it's trying to 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 do and it's kind of an interesting um pairing with uh herzog's nosferatu because that one's much more like in tune with like the pastoralness of the uh you know of, of germany and austria and just kind of that like being out in the in the land and the farms and the mountains and everything and i, I it's it's you know, it, it kind of feels like this one um, is like kind of taking elements of of the early of the early one, as well as the Herzog film, as well as the text, and really just kind of almost combining everything into uh, 
just this this as as Nathan was talking about earlier this kind of like this maximum effort of everything you know you kind of get all of these different elements but it feels like Coppola is just really like um you know rearing everything up to you know a thousand percent uh to to really like maximize on so that everything feels so heightened and so emotional that really you know anything any flaws in like the script or you know i don't don't see how you can watch this movie and not at any point be you know not entertained you know even if there's like a slow moment in it i feel like there has to be something that regains your attention constantly because you have so many moving parts that are um just you know demanding your attention at all times it's just all about the vibes man it's just pure vibes one fucking vibe after the other couple is just like here's a vibe here's a vibe you get a vibe you get a vibe it's all it is (laughs) good shit yeah I love the speaking of vibes, the the cinema the the cinemagraph scene when they go in there and they're like humping in the back room and uh and then this wolf comes in and scares everybody out of the place and it comes up to Winona Ryder and is looking at her and she's like, Oh shit, it's this wolf, it's gonna eat me. And then Dracula comes up behind the wolf and is like, oh, meet my dog. And then they just sit there and, like, rub on this dog and they're looking at each other. And I'm like, my God. Like, <laughs> cool down. Um, any any final thoughts on, on Dracula before we uh, we wrap up? Um, this was one I, I, I highly recommend people check out. I think it's... Uh, a hell of a time um you know if if for 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 whatever reason it reminded me a lot of like there's a lot of moments i mean we talked about like the silhouette scenes at the beginning but this felt like Mm -hmm. a live action stop motion animated (laughs) movie like it felt like like it felt like everybody was like i think we kind of talked about it earlier but it felt like everybody were everybody was like puppets in this movie it was crazy um loved it a lot yeah Mm. it's a flesh cartoon you know I don't know if I like that term. It's like, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, we're going to be talking about Speed Racer in this series, and that's another flesh cartoon. I just think that this movie is just like, uh, um, I love, I don't know, I just love p- people seeing it, showing it to people, because I think it really just kind of blows your mind open if you think that Coppola is just like the godfather. You know, this is just like shows that just totally different visually expressive like totally just bonkers um side of him just like totally apart from from that and it's just crazy to you know think that this is like made by the same person who made that normie classic you know that that movie that everybody is like oh that's a great movie um this is just like the totally like different side of that i was just gonna say this is like I'm going to get my neck bit by a vampire and put my tits out for all to see that the scene when she, when the friend gets bit and it's like in the, it's in the garden and Winona Ryder's trying to like get a hold of her and Dracula's a, a beast person, man, and they are fucking. that was just so much energy, just so much energy in that scene. Well, yeah, there's a similar is... scene later whenever um, 
Van Helsing comes over to like give his medical advice on that same girl. And I mean, the ostensibly what's happening in the scene is they find out she has she's been bitten by a vampire and that's what's wrong with her. But really, it's just like her laying on the bed having an orgasm for like yes. 30 seconds as like yeah. men walk in and out of the room. Um, yeah. But to, to go back to your point, Nathan, about like reconsidering Coppola, this is my first late period Coppola movie. I've actually only seen four Coppola films, uh, including this. And, you know, to validate you and your tourism <laughs> a little bit, this is by far my favorite of the four Coppola movies I've seen. So I'll have to yeah. check out Twixt and, and check some out of one others. from the heart, um, check out Youth Without Youth. You know, Coppola's the American Ruiz. You know, he's doing some crazy shit on another level. Uh, nobody else is in a class of <laughs> if, his own. Speaking of crazy shit on another level, I'll throw out two more interesting visual effects moments before we wrap up um one is all the the cool nosferatu-esque shadow play that's happening when keanu first comes to dracula's castle um like before he sees the figure of dracula we see like a foreboding shadow kind of coming uh coming in one direction uh across the wall but then we see dracula standing facing a totally up, uh, different direction uh, as the camera pans over uh, and then a similar thing is happening when they're in the dining room together and uh, dracula is sitting and looking at this image of a woman he recognizes and but we see his shadow kind of like uh, ring Keanu Reeves's neck, uh, which is a really uh, uh, interesting visual effect. And also um, to go back to that scene where um, Winona Ryder's friend is is seen having sex with Dracula in the garden. Um, I think the the Dracula sees Winona Ryder and senses the blood running under her skin. And there's this split second visual effect where you see like all of the the veins like run down her face um which i thought surely was a digital effect surely this was uh coppola uh you know combining digital and practical effects it's it's wild for me to think about how they they might have done that uh, specifically practically but um yeah i'm just kind of amazed and impressed by so many different little details in this thing yeah that scene in the garden is one for the furries <laughs> One for the furries. Let that be the uh, the run- tagline of this episode. <laughs> you get a vibe. <laughs> there one it is. One for the heart, one for the furries. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will that that'll wrap up this uh episode of cinematary um you can find us on <laughs> facebook at i don't really want to give all this information out to the furries um at facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary at uh twitter and instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode uh also the big thank you to our patrons uh, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary if you would like to support the show thank you to cam chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Cindy Roberts, Gotham, Harry Eskin. What is it? Hold on. I'm struggling with these new ones. Hell yeah, Small World. Uh, Joe Jordan, Maggie, Matthew Lingo, Pedro Seferum, 
Ron Hayes, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Um, like Nathan alluded to, next week we, we will be talking about editing and 2008's Speed Racers. So we're we're really gonna be uh, <laughs> really gonna be earning some uh, some kudos in the old film Twitter world with a, a nice Speed Racer talk. Um, One of the great films of all time. <laughs> uh, but thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>